Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by M&M's Caramel. Amanda, have you tried M&M's Caramel yet? I have consumed several bags at this point. As have I. Caramel has been square for far too long, and M&M's is doing their part by giving you that familiar flavor in a package you love, surrounding the smooth caramel and delicious milk chocolate. As always, M&M's knows how to bring spontaneous fun, just like, oh, I don't know, breaking down the Oscar race for an hour. With M&M's Caramel, we can all agree that caramel is more fun than ever. Go grab some M&M's Caramel today and let your taste buds go for a ride. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Oscars. But first, festival season is sort of wrapping up here. We're kind of at the end of things, Amanda. We've seen a few things come out into the world. And uh, Jojo Rabbit won the Audience Award. Yes! This is so hilarious. I haven't seen this movie. I don't know anything. It's just... This is so funny. Shout out to the people of Toronto who like to go to movies and make their opinions heard. This is hysterical. For those of you who don't understand why we are yelling and laughing within three seconds, it's because once again, the Toronto International Film Festival has granted its audience award to a highly divisive film that got very suspicious reviews from all of its critics, but was widely loved by the audiences. That movie is Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, which is coming out from Fox Searchlight in October. And it sure feels a lot like some stories we've seen before out of Toronto. Primarily, last year we had Green Book, Mm -hmm. and the year before that we had three billboards. And, you know, we could go all the way back through the last 10 years of the Audience Award, and almost every single one of the films that has won this award has been a Best Picture nominee. And some of them have been pretty good films. Some of them have been great films. Some of them have been things we'd rather forget. But there's no denying that this is a very powerful bellwether for the Oscar race. and. We have we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. So we're we're not gonna do the takes. We're gonna we're definitely gonna talk about this movie when it comes out. We haven't seen the movie. I will say that both the people who saw it and didn't see it regarded this news with quite a bit of I I don't know, delirious, odd joy and pain at the same time. Is that possible? You're clutching yourself right now. You can you're gonna burst open. I just think it's so perfect. It's so perfect that we couldn't even imagine it, right? Because you and I have been talking about what would win the Toronto Audience Award Um, with not a lot of respect, I think, for the prior choices of the Toronto Audience Award and thinking that it would, you know, be something that reflects like a a vision of American values right now. Parasite or or waves or something that from a true artist that we haven't seen before. No, but you thought that and I thought it would be like... The two popes, or once we learned that there was Mr. Rogers in Canada, something like Mr. Rogers, something to, you know, feel good or something that reflects, that says, this is who I am, that I like this movie, which is kind of what these, uh, what the audience likes to do with respect to Green Book, Three Billboards, all of these things. And I like, it didn't even occur to me that Jojo Rabbit would be this movie because it's so. There are stylistic complications, and it is, like, so hot-button that I didn't think they would put their finger on it. But I forgot that the actual tagline of the film is an anti-hate satire. That is literally how they're marketing it. And they went right for it. It, it, it is predictable upon reflection. And, you know, I my, the first thought that came to mind when this news broke is we got something to talk about. You know, this is very clearly yeah. going to be a big part of the narrative for the next five months. Whether the movie actually emerges as something resembling a frontrunner is hard to say. I mean, just to go back and look at some of those movies that I mentioned before, Green Book and Three Billboards, also La La Land, Room, The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, 
Silver Linings Playbook. You got to go all the way back to 2011 to Nadine Labaki's Where Do We Go Now to find a movie that won this award that didn't get nominated for Best Picture. So it's in, um, I guess you could say, hallowed company. You know, this is a a lighthearted Hitler satirical fantasia from the guy who made Thor Ragnarok. So on the one hand, it's completely ridiculous. On the other hand, Taika is a great filmmaker and has made Hunt for the Wilder People and uh, Boy. He's made some really great movies. I'm a huge fan of Ragnarok. I was quite looking forward to this movie, and I'm still looking forward to seeing it. But it's got a 49 score on Metacritic right now. And the only time I can think of a movie getting this pummeled and moving straight onto the Oscar conveyor belt is Bohemian Rhapsody. That said, Bohemian Rhapsody was last year, and we're in unusual times when it comes to the Oscars. We don't really know who is voting for the Oscars. Is it a reactionary group of people? Is it a young group of people that is trying to say something about the world? We kind of don't really know. It's both of those things. It's it's all of those things. I think what is interesting to me about this, or hilarious to me, and again, I have not seen it. I have no idea whether I like it or not. Is just that it seems like the Oscars are just on 11 this year already. Everyone is really, and that's fun for us to talk about. I'm sure that come November, December, you and I will be tearing our hair out at the level of discourse and venom and uh, agendas and everyone just shouting at each other about their various issues. But you get canceled and you get canceled yeah, and you get canceled. I am right. And this is what I believe. And like, you, you can just see it happening in real time. And we knew that that is the environment in which we're operating in. But we still like I was still surprised and just really amused by the fact that it was the most controversial film that, that won the audience award. We're going for it. It's perfect. It lived up completely. And it continued another trend, which is that the runners up for this year were Marriage Story and Parasite, which are I would say probably the two best reviewed films full stop out of a uh, festival season. And I will be very surprised if those movies are also not nominated for Best Picture. Marriage Story is much more likely than Parasite, but Parasite, the the wave is strong. You know, there's just a ton of positivity around this movie, which is very unusual for a movie like this. And in previous years, you know, last year, If Beale Street Could Talk and Roma were the runners-up. They were both nominated for Best Picture. I, Tanya, and Call Me By Your Name the year before that. Obviously, both of those films received quite a few Oscar nominations. Some even won some Oscars. So... Off we go. Tiff is over. Telluride is over. Cannes is over. We have the New York Film Festival coming a little bit later this month where we'll see The Irishman, among a couple of other movies. But just just from your perspective, and you've still got a lot of movies to watch, and I've still got a lot of movies to watch. How do you feel about the way this has rolled out? Does it feel in any meaningfully way, in any meaningful way new, or does it just feel like the same story we've been watching for years now? I think it's pretty familiar in a lot of ways. We obviously have a lot more access to all of this stuff. I, Like I said, it feels very heightened. Uh, we've been making fun of everybody's tweets for as long as people have been tweeting. But it, it's great. it does feel like everyone is dialed in and trying to get their piece of the Oscar pie just in terms of being heard. And so it feels really loud. But what this is basically is that there have been festivals since, since May. And critics and press have seen these movies and applied their their critic brain to them. And the Toronto Audience Award is kind of the first indicator of like what normal moviegoers think. It is kind of a more mainstream sensibility. And it makes sense that it is slightly different than what all the critics think. I love critics. Like I, you know, I often agree with them, but it is a particular type of taste. Yes. And the Oscars definitely do not follow critics' tastes, much to our chagrin these past 89, 90, 91 years. Is it the 91st Oscars? I believe so. Yeah. 91 years. So 
it's a familiar pattern, and I think we'll ping pong between the two. And the the wrench, as you mentioned in all this, is that we don't actually know who the Academy voters are and where they fit on that spectrum between critic and regular person. And I think it's a little bit of both. It is a very large academy. Yeah. And when I was at Telluride, I had people telling me this is a uh, this is also a serious bellwether for for the Oscars because a lot of Academy members are here at the festival. And I regarded that with a little bit of skepticism, not because those people weren't there, but because you don't get the same boom at that festival s- sort of narratively as you do out of Toronto the last few years in particular. And so, you know, while some of those movies were really warmly regarded, Marriage Story in particular, I thought got a nice bump and Parasite got a nice bump. But, you know, like Uncut Gems and Waves and a handful of other movies that are really strong kind of not just festival fare, but critical fare and are part of the streaming conversation and are, are, are interesting looks at damaged people. Those are not always the kinds of movies that succeed at the Oscars. You know, La La Land came out with the Audience Award for a reason. And so we'll, we'll see. Now, Moonlight did win. It, uh, it did emerge a Telluride. And it, it is the kind of movie that can still win an Oscar. That was only a few years ago. I think we don't know if we're in the new reality of Shape of Water and Three Billboards and Green Book or if things are just kind of flipping back and forth right now. It could be both. I think it is too early to say whether Moonlight is was the exception as opposed to the 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 new order, as I think you wrote like that very night. But, I, you know, I, things are bouncing around a lot. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Things are bouncing around. Let's have them go up and down and go right to stock up, stock down. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. So stock up is very straightforward and very obvious, and that is for Hustlers. What a weekend for Hustlers. Hustlers also premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, where it was, I would say, rapturously received, and I think was a pretty smart move by STX, the distributor, to put that movie there to build a, a really a white hot heat on it in the days running up to the release of the movie because there was a lot of Jennifer Lopez's amazing content in the world last week. We created some of that content. Yes. And the movie opened to $33 million at the box office, which is a lot for a movie like this, which is basically a mid-budget drama that does not have classical IP. And it has some movie stars. You could there, the, Certainly Constance Wu was the star of one of the biggest movies of the year last year. And Jennifer Lopez is a world historic icon. We've broken mm-hmm. down her her strengths and her uh, successes over the years. But still, $33 million going up against It Chapter 2 in its second weekend is a lot of money. It's a lot of money for a studio like STX, which is still only, I don't know, five or six years old and has struggled at times to create an identity for itself. This movie was originally developed at Annapurna, and they passed it off. And wow. Annapurna probably could use a movie like this right now. Yeah. And credit to them and credit to Adam McKay for identifying Lorene Scafaria and she did an amazing job with this movie. Amanda, what did you think of Hustlers? I had a fantastic time. It's a fun movie. It's And that is really kind of the appeal at some point. I think it is expertly done. And we have to talk about, I, we already talked about JLo, but we will continue to talk about her for the next six, six months. But I do think some of it is just that it is dynamic and there's like music and you go to the movies and you have a nice time and you don't feel too bad about anything, even though it is a technically a crime story. And I I was trying to think the last time I just had a lot of fun at the movies like that. And it had been a while. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to kind of dissect because I think you can take one reading that is 
sophisticated and look under the surface at the themes. And the movie makes it makes efforts to kind of talk about 2008 and the financial crisis and what Wall Street does, what Wall Street does to women, what Wall Street does to society. And some of that, most of that stuff is all valid. And, and some of it, I think, works well. But on a purely visceral level, it's a movie that, one, a lot of women saw. 65% of the people who saw this movie were women. And two, there are not a lot of versions of in which Basically, women are in charge of the film in all aspects. Yes, and they're not making something that is, I don't, I don't know, a quotidian or um, the sort of like romantic comedy that we might assume that's like a group of people like this might make. It's different. It's a, it's a crime movie. And yeah, but it's like a crime movie slash romantic comedy. The thing about Hustlers and I, it, it definitely does hit the two thousand eight crisis. I mean, it like they have the Lehman Brothers sh- uh, shutting down. Uh, I believe it's it's um, Alison Williams' dad. Oh my God, that's what that's amazing. That's how His I think of him Brian now. Williams. His name is Brian Williams, but that's where he is in the culture, which is moving on. Anyway, once, once disgraced, now revivified <laughs> MSNBC News but, anchor Brian but, Williams. But they have the clip of the crisis, so they are aware of the themes. I do not think that this is ultimately a movie about. Um, the economic situation in America. I think it's about friendship. I think it's about like a bunch of bunch of ladies being in a room and and to an extent that it's about the love between the Jennifer Lopez character and the Constance Wu character. That is played in a lot of ways like a rom-com mm-hmm. um, more so than it is a sociological diagnosis of like the plight of strippers in New York in the late aughts to early 2000s. And that appeals to people. Yes, Destiny sees Ramona and she falls for Ramona instantly, yes. and that become it does become a kind of a love story of friendship. And you know what? What to say? The music is incredible. I think they have. She perfectly evokes that 07, 08, 09 mm-hmm. period of time, which you know I very much coming of age in New York at that time. Yes, and so it's familiar to us. I think it's easy to fuck up the music cues and the style. And the pacing of a, a a recent period piece, and I was really impressed by what she did there. I think she just did a lot of really smart stuff. Scafaria with casting Lizzo, casting Cardi B, casting Trace Lissette, putting a lot of people in the movie who have a certain kind of emotional or artistic or cultural cachet that will make people go like, oh, yes, when they show up on screen, which is kind of what you want from a movie like mm-hmm. this, which hangs together okay, pretty well as a narrative movie, but is mostly just like a series of incredible— right endorphin hits yes um what did you think of constance Wu, and what do you make of constance Wu as a movie star now (laughs) because she's now been in two big hits yes you know uh, how about this i i think that this movie is a tremendous testament to the movie star power of jennifer lopez (laughs) (laughs) right so the, the, the very tricky and unspoken thing I think about this movie is that not people are not in love with the Constance Wu performance. Yeah. And whether it's the difficulty of that character or writing that character, I, I know from almost every person I've talked to, I'm not trying to tell on anybody, but everybody's like, Constance Wu's fine. Well, so I'll tell you what. I think she's uh, excellent in the scenes with the Julia Stiles character. Uh-huh. At the end, <laughs> she seems far more comfortable mm. in that medium of... Um, I, I don't know. It just seems like she's not particularly comfortable playing a stripper for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. And maybe she, like, it's physically very difficult. Lord knows that I could not do it. No, and I could, though. I could do you it. You could. Oh, yes. congratulations. I, I, in great. fact, I am in training right now 
for my role in Hustlers 2, right. which is uh, an all-male cast okay. that I'm really excited about. It's Hustlers 2, but it's just continuing the story of Goodfellas, but we're calling it Hustlers okay. 2. That's great. Is it that just Magic Mike XXL? Yeah. Well, okay. no. Hen- I right. play Henry Hill's son who okay. becomes a male stripper. It's going to be a really—I'm really fired up about this. Okay. Great. Congratulations to you. Picture that. Um, I— I will say also that everyone you just mentioned, Lizzo, Cardi B, Jennifer Lopez, they have stage experience, Mm. which is a very different type of performing than being in front being in a movie or on a TV show. And so it it may be that that Constance Wu just doesn't really have that mode, which, you know, but she doesn't she doesn't look like she's having as much fun as everybody else in this movie. And it shows because everyone else is like having a lot of fun. It's very true. And she has to be the emotional fulcrum in a way that the other characters don't always, you know, Cardi B just gets to be really funny and pop yeah. off and then she kind of disappears. You know, the movie loses a little life when you mit- lose that first group of women in the film. But I think it kind of comes back into shape. Should we talk about JLo in more detail here? About Ramona, about whether this is actually a real thing and she's going to the Oscars for playing this this woman? I think if anyone at the Oscars has like a quarter of a brain and anyone in the Academy, which is like a very big if, as we've said, then she should be there. Because I, I, it was a tremendous, tremendous performance. I can't believe how good she is. She carries this movie from the minute she is there in the fur coat, swaddling Constance Wu. It's an amazing part. It's amazing. And they have actual chemistry, which is incredible. Obviously, the criminal scene, which is uh, when Jennifer Lopez dances to Fiona Apple. One of the all-time entrances you, you, you'll ever see in your life. I mean, that was that's it, that's very meaningful to me for in a number of ways. If you heard me last week on the show, you know how much uh, Jennifer Lopez means to sure. me. If you've heard me o- over a dinner life, table, you yeah. know how much Fiona Likewise. Apple means to me. So quite a, quite a flex. And then, you know, she she really does bring the emotional heft of the movie home. That last scene when she's showing you the picture of tiny Constance, Constance Wu, that is just like there is like love and regret and knowledge. It's a it's an emotional performance as well, well as like the amazing physical. Holy shit. It's J-Lo stripping. So Chris Ryan said something funny to me about this movie. He said that he wished that there was a little bit more of that J-Lo in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, my immediate response to Chris, because I don't know how to have a conversation with a Chris without kind of bantering about something, was the movie doesn't work if you get too much of that person because she's too vulnerable. And what you need her to be is this impenetrable right. crime lord where everything is kind of rosy all the time. On the other hand, it would be nice to just be around that person and see her acting in that way, too, because she is very steely throughout this movie. She's kind of unbreakable in a way. And that's the one time when we see like, oh. She did love Destiny. They did have a love affair. They did have an emotional connection, a bond that is, you know, extends beyond their thievery. Yeah, but I mean, that's like the, that's the driving force of the movie is because it's what the Constance Wu character wants, what Destiny wants more than anything. I mean, she keeps calling, um, I I keep wanting to say Jessica Pressler. In my mind, the Julia Julia Stiles is playing Jessica Pressler, who wrote the New York Magazine story that uh, inspired this movie. But she keeps calling being like, have you heard from Ramona? You know, what did Ramona say? What, like, Jennifer Lopez, the Ramona character really is kind of like the prize object of the movie. And you're trying, you just want to be in that coat with her. That's like, honestly, why Destiny is doing what she's doing. It's why all of the men, certainly, that are coming to see her strip are doing it. But so you can't give it all away because that's kind of like, that's the ultimate reveal. That's, is that she was in, you know, she loved her all along. 
Yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. And there are a couple of good moments, I think, for J-Lo. There's a lot of conversation about, like, she obviously looks so great for 50 years old. She trained to wow. dance, and she strips in the film. And, you know, she gives this kind of, like I said, kind of hard-as-nails performance. But there's a couple of moments. There's one moment in particular in one of the strip club scenes when they're in the back room. And one it's it's much years later. You know, it's 2015, mm-hmm. 16 at this point. And one of the guys upon whom she's dancing says, like, here's 100 bucks, not feeling it. Like, yeah. take five. And she's been rejected. And she's older now. And she's not in the prime of her stripping career. And there's I a, think you're also meant to understand that she's not willing to um, do as much as perhaps some of the younger Completely. She's, she's not a Russian prostitute yes. like many of the women who are stripping in the strip club at that time. And the look on her face in that moment is just great acting. Yeah. <laughs> she's, just, she's a great actor. Yeah. And you you understand everything she's feeling. There's no dialogue. And that is the kind of thing that gets people awards. <laughs> and that's why we're talking about this so much, I think. Because yeah. I think people will recognize that. I think, I think it won't just will. be the physical. But I think also just there is a star power element to it that it is a little unfair to Constance Wu at, at points because Jennifer Lopez just like blows everyone off of the screen. It is a pretty perfect marriage of actor and role. And especially given how it echoes certain like real life dynamics in Jennifer Lopez's career it is this is something of a comeback we haven't seen her doing anything at this level in a long time people really like that and they just the Oscars need stars we talk about this all the time they need stars and I have been thinking a lot about we talk so much about how like movie stars are dead they're quote dead and they are in a way in the sense that we don't create new movie stars and a movie star alone doesn't really open a box office in the way that it used to. I mean, because that's how you used to make movies, right? Is Tom Hanks will be in this, Julia Roberts in this, and $100 million of tickets will be sold. And that's not how it works anymore. It's I, I pee. But I think probably, what, 30 of this $33 million was because Jennifer Lopez was in a movie? I We think people still do respond to movie stars. 100%. I think an uncharitable description yeah. is Jennifer Lopez is in a movie about Stripper Thieves, which is a good sell. It's kind of a good old-fashioned elevator pitch for a movie, and that is very powerful. And I think also just the movie is really well marketed. You know, it's like Cardi B is in the trailer. The songs in the trailer are exciting. It looks like, as you said, a fun time at the theater, which is something that people do want. They will show up for that if you position it correctly. You know, as for whether the Academy pays attention, I don't really know if they have even any sense of respect for her because there is this kind of uncanny thing where you can be too famous for not acting in a way that I think damages your chances. And like, if you look at the contenders in this category, and we're not going to study this category yet too much, but like, you know, it's Annette Benning for The Report. It's Laura Dern for Marriage Story. It's, you know, it was Nicole Kidman for The Goldfinch until The Goldfinch came out. Mm-hmm. It's Katriana Bell for Ford versus Ferrari. These are all, um, you know, they're all good performances, but they're all a little bit formal. They're not that fun. And Laura Dern's having some fun, but it's in a movie that has kind of a classical shape. And so I'll be curious to see, in the same way that, like, you don't really usually see comedies get nominated for Best Picture, you don't usually see women in crime movies get nominated for Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress, which is a challenge. I mean, it's true in a lot of ways that this is, she will be nominated for a Golden Globe. Like, that is just a guarantee. And there is a bit of, there are some performances and movies that clean up at the Golden Globes because the Golden Globes, for their many problems, do understand that 
famous people still matter. She will be there. This will probably be nominated. This might whether this goes into best musical or comedy will be hilarious because they might do that. Oh, I'm sure it will. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if but I think that the supporting categories they're together, aren't they? At the yeah, Golden Globes, yeah, yeah. so you know, it's six of one for her. I I have to assume she'll compete in supporting. Um, in theory, in theory, I think that would be wise for her. But that at least guarantees that she'll be in the conversation until January. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about what a uh, interesting and uh, uh, heightened Oscar season it's going to be in a lot of ways that if if it's just Jennifer Lopez is around as a breath of fresh air and everyone can just agree that this is a really fun thing that we'd like to reward, she's she'll already be around. I, I, I don't know. You know, the only other person that is in this category that I think is notable to, to your point about movie stars is Margot Robbie, who's one of only like four or five people who has emerged in the last 10 years as somebody who you're like, I, I think I would see that movie because of her. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not true every time she puts a movie out, but she does have a, a, that kind of classical quality that we're talking about. She has, She's very charismatic. She commands the screen. You know, women think she's cool. Men are in love with her. All that bullshit. And it'll be interesting because they're basically playing like two sides of the same coin of fame. You know, the Sharon Tate performance is so quiet. There's so little dialogue. It's reserved. It's physical. Ramona is a, a, a ball of flame. You know, she's, you can't take your eyes off her the whole time she's there and she's at you the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I, I don't think that this will be uh, making its way towards adapted screenplay, but it might be. It's a pretty impressive adaptation of a piece of magazine journalism, which mm-hmm. sometimes makes for a good movie, a la Argo, but often doesn't. And there's a reason that not a lot of movies get made out of magazine journalism stories. I will say I was surprised, I don't know if you were, by how faithful the movie was to Jessica's story. I mean, it's really, there are huge chunks just right out of the piece in the film. Yeah. Which I thought was fascinating. I I will say I was a huge fan of that story. And at some point, you understand why, because they are just kind of fully drawn. It is also, they, they're playing archetypes. It's they're, it's a pretty contained story, and you know what you know about them in relationship to each other, and you need that for a magazine piece, and you need it for a movie. We're going to talk about uh, a movie that is adapted from a much uh, longer source material. A bigger text. And uh, <laughs> it's the, I realized that kind of the one-to-one lengthwise really, really works out for a movie, you know? Yeah, the the <laughs> let's, let's let's make a transition. So Hustlers, the stock is up. The stock yeah. the stock is extra up for Jennifer Lopez. The stock is about as down as you can possibly be for the Goldfinch. This is an extremely tough beat for Warner Brothers, for the makers of this film, for people who like literary adaptations. The movie is adapted from a book that you love by Donna Tartt, and um, what can we say? It is the uh, biggest bomb of the year. And one of the biggest bombs, frankly, in the history of movies. It it made $2.5 million this year, which is not terrible if you were opening on, say, I don't know, 1,000 screens, maybe 500 screens. It opened on 2,500 screens. I saw it on a Friday in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, there were three people in the theater. Wow. It was sad. And... It's already got a stink on it. it. Had a stink on it coming out of yeah. Out I was going to say the stock is down, but it's really only down from the fact that people still had some hope for it. It's. It, I think this was written off a long time ago. It was. I mean, it's. It's got so many talented people associated with it, and it's based on such a beloved thing that I went in hoping for. And I'm very curious to hear what you think about this. I went in hoping for something that was like just mediocre, 
so that I could come in and say, much like we did with Where'd You Go, Bernadette? You know, like, good effort. They tried something different with this book, and a lot of it doesn't work, but I admire the craftsmanship. I have something of a similar opinion about this movie where there are some things in it that I can see what they were going for, but it really does not work as a movie like, yeah. at all. I would like to ask you a question, which is because you you started reading the book, but you finished about 100 pages in, correct? I did. And you know what I thought of, too? And this is a comment on the movie is the movie is very episodic and the book is episodic. And that's one of the reasons why I put it down, because I think I finished a chapter and I was kind of like and I started another chapter and it was in a kind of a different space in a far off place. Right. And I was like, I don't know if I'm ready to. What happened in New York? Like, why are we not here now? Right. And it kind of lost me. Now, maybe I'll pick it back up and see if I can fall back inside of it. Well, so having not read the book, but having seen the movie, can you like, can you tell me what you think happened? Like, do you have a sense of what happened in the movie? Like, what is the plot? Sure. I will try to describe it. Okay. Um, A young boy's mother is killed while they are visiting a museum Mm -hmm. in a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. The boy then sets out on what has been called many times over a Dickensian quest to find himself by way of discovery around the piece of art that he was observing when the bomb went off Mm -hmm. and his struggles with addiction, which drive him into increasingly fraught and complicated social situations. Now, inside of that, there are journeys into the recession in Las Vegas. There are journeys into the world of fine antiques. There are journeys into the into Amsterdam and, and a crime underworld that we hardly understand. There's friendship with a Russian immigrant. Yeah, yeah, this that's awful. You're like describing impressionistically the scenes that you've seen. And like what I'm asking you is, do you know how they connect? Like, do you know what happened? Do you have a sense of the timeline? Like, do you know why they were suddenly like went from New York to Las Vegas, then flash forward, then flash back? I know why in a sense. Yeah. I could, you can, it's the kind of movie that you can feel, you know, I've I've written this before, but you can feel the razor blade cutting the film. You know, when the people used to make movies on film and they would edit, they would Mm -hmm. literally cut the film with a razor blade and, and, and tape it together. And it feels very taped together because it doesn't, because you don't spend enough time with certain characters, you don't understand the motivations for why they do certain things that they do. Right. And the performances are so inert. And there's no there's no extravagance. It's a it's a very it seems like a very refined novel, and it's attempting to be a very refined film. But film is not a refined medium um, for something that has this much plot. Yes. You know, if if you were making a movie that is it, you're one of your favorite movies this year that ha- has like a weird thing in common with it, like the souvenir, where you can sort of not you can undershare. Mm-hmm. in an effort to tell the story. Yeah. A movie like this can't do that. There's so much shit goes on. Right. So I, I wasn't confused, to your point, but maybe you can tell me what the movie doesn't do well. Well, I mean, I, I kind of think it doesn't do very much well, which is unfortunate. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the movie being like, what is the goldfinch about? Which is like tough. <laughs> That's tough both for the movie and for the the book. And I I reread the book, or I, I just kind of picked it up last week. So I made it about four hundred pages in before I saw the the movie. And you're such a freak that you just reread four hundred pages of a novel. Well, I you know it's really readable, and I, I did spend a lot of time after in the middle of the movie, which is again bad sign for the movie, and also afterwards being like, is this a good book? I don't know. Did I like it? Is it does it actually have merit? Hmm. It's a book about um, grief and also about art and what we the meaning that we attach to art and 
and authenticity and what is real and what's fake. And is that what you were asking me? Like what the themes are? No, 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 no. Because I, I was asking you if you could tell what happens because it, there is also a lot of plot in the book. Um, I guess that's what it's about. I was thinking a lot about like really how shallow the book is when you think about it. Um, it is focused on this thing happens and then another thing happens and it's told from the perspective of a teenage boy, which Donna Tartt does a great job of creating a character, but it also, there's not a ton of depth there or it's like a 13-year-old figuring out its stuff simultaneously. So she doesn't have to possibly do as much development as you might expect if it were about an adult. It's like basically about like having good taste and how you can only be a good person if you have good taste is what I realized halfway through the thing. And I felt the shallowness of the book more when they were trying to adapt it because they were cramming in so many events, but there wasn't a lot of like there there. I do think the, the movie, the movie doesn't do anything about the painting or about the furniture, which are like two major visual elements in the book. And there is, there are a lot of references and a lot of, there's a lot of art in a book about art. And you don't really see a lot of that in the movie, which I thought was interesting. Well, the the stuff that I thought that worked the best was most of the antique stuff with Jeffrey Wright. And that world is not a world I know very much about. And there's only a handful of moments there where you get him kind of describing like the fine grain and how you can tell if something is a knockoff or not or reproduction as it were but there's there, there it's too eager to move on to the next sto- part of the story so you don't get a chance to really understand why the thing that is happening is actually happening in the first place honestly what it felt like to me watching it without that deeper understanding that you're talking about and you saying the way you describing it the way that you did makes me think of this it was kind of like the monocle version of an episode of law and order where, you know, when you're watching an episode of Law and Order, I don't know, I don't know if you watch much Law and Order, but I've seen Law and Order. You know, in Law and Order, obviously the first half is the law and the second half is the order, you know, the cops and then the the the, the courts. And the cops are kind of doing their cop work and they're doing their best to investigate the case, but inevitably they're mostly not achieving anything. And then there is some happenstance moment that happens at the end of the show where a lawyer either lucks out or gets screwed and either convicts or fails to convict. And it's always like this weird coincidence where we're like, oh, yeah, it was actually, you know, the guy who was under the manhole cover in the middle of the street who popped out because he was fixing a sewer line. And the book, like there's a moment in the book when um, Ansel Elgort's character, Theo, Mm -hmm. encounters uh, his Russian friend, Boris, Mm -hmm. who he has not seen in 25, uh, 10 years, 30 years. Like, I I really don't know how much time has elapsed. They obviously don't look anything like they did when they were children. He immediately recognizes him and they meet in New York where neither one of them knew that they would be. That's like the most extraordinary coincidence in the world. Yeah. And they hit it off immediately and then jump into a crime caper together. Yes. And the whole time I was watching, I was like, well, this is just a load of bullshit. Like it was, there was no suspension of disbelief. It was absurd. Right. The acting wasn't very good. And the the crux of a movie, kind of like a turning point moment in the movie, just pulled me way out of the movie. And what had previously tried to be this like, sensitive evocation of what it means to appreciate art and how that damages us and what it means to our relationship to family and all the things that you're saying, the the themes of the movie immediately become secondary to like, we have to go to Amsterdam to get this painting. Right. And then the resolution of that is all, there are no stakes to it in the end is all. No. I I should have said that 
the Goldfinch, the book, has is famously, or maybe not famously, but I think it's one of the worst endings, like, of any book I've ever read. And I thought that even before I reread it or saw this movie and before I started questioning kind of the, the depths of the book itself. But it essentially, it really just is plot, 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 plot um, with some feelings and about art. And then they resolve the crime thing and then she just tacks on, like, 20 pages of the Theo character having some personal revelations and like swearing to do better. It's it's a it's a coda almost and it makes no sense. But you know, and I and for I was willing to be like, oh whatever, it's a great book and then she just didn't know how to land the plane. A lot of people don't know how to end the and end movies or books or anything. But it does now seem like the seams were showing a bit in terms of she was slapping on some meaning into something that maybe actually didn't have as much meaning and depth for them to work with um, as I thought it did, even though it's 700 pages long. I think that's true of a lot of art that you appreciate on the first watch and also true of a lot of things you don't get on the first watch and then you realize there's just a much deeper subtext and here maybe it's not as significant. You you made me aware of the fact that this book won the Pulitzer when it came yeah. out in 2013. I, I'm like being really revisionist about it. I even enjoyed rereading the 400 pages than I did. She creates like a world and um, is it's so immersive. You're in New York, you're in Las Vegas, which I, I think the movie is bouncing around too much to really establish that experience, even though it was very cool to see the places and it's, you know, shot beautifully by Roger Deakins, which is just like mystifying. Well, you know, it's, we mentioned this last week, but it's John Crowley who yeah. made Brooklyn, which is a wonderful film from 15. And it's a great cast. There are times in the movie where I thought Nicole Kidman was doing something very effective. Mm-hmm. And there are other times where she just looks like a mannequin. And it's kind of hard to parse. It's kind of hard to understand what the thinking here was with just not making this a miniseries. And there's something challenging about that because unfortunately— We've spent so much time on this podcast for the last year saying, where is our middle, mid-budget, right. middle-brow literary adaptation? Where we, we we love these movies and we want these movies and we got one. And it, the way that we got it was very complicated because Warner Brothers bought the rights to it, but they needed Amazon to foot the bill of 30% of the budget to get it made. And there's all of this complex machinations behind the scenes in Hollywood just to get the movie on screen. Then it comes out. And it's not good and no one goes to see it. And then we have this conversation and then people don't go to see it. And then right. they realize that they shouldn't make movies like this. So it, it's a, it's such a high risk proposition to try to do this. And it would make so much more sense to be like, shouldn't Netflix have bought The Goldfinch and just made it a six part series and it could have been eight and a half hours and that would have been a better way to tell this story? I guess so. You know, the flip side to that is that I think that probably on this project would have resulted in a better product. But I, I was thinking about adaptations and I was thinking about the Joe Wright and a Karenin adaptation that you love and I am fond of, even though I wish it were on location, because, you know, I would like to see some of Russia if we're doing Anna Karenina. But see, that's why I love it, though. Sure. But what I was about to say is that it does have a vision of how it's adapting it and it is matching the ambition to the scale and it takes a thousand pages and puts it in two hours and it works and it's good. It does work. So it is possible to do it. And I actually, I think the timeline and the jumping times and everyone coming together that this movie tries is actually smart. I disagree with you that it was, it was condensed too much that you couldn't really follow things, but they had an idea about how to adapt this movie. And I admire people who try 
and admire at good adaptations. I just like it didn't work. It just really didn't work. And sometimes that happens. It does. It reminded me also a little bit of the It and It Chapter 2 adaptation, which I think the first film in particular works better than this movie and obviously is a much bigger box office success. But that those two films try to take a bite out of a, an 1,100-page Stephen King novel that ha, that is also plot, 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 as all Stephen King mm-hmm. novels are. And some of the things are easy to convert and other things are not. And it does the same thing, which is it flips back and forth between childhood and adulthood and the trauma incurred from childhood into adulthood. And then we reflect back on the childhood. It's a time-worn strategy for telling a story. It's just, it, it's really neither fish nor fowl. It's two hours and 20 minutes. It's not three and a half hours. You know, it, it could have been this massive art world crime globe-trotting epic, mm-hmm. and it's not that. Or it could have been a kind of a contained, you know, character study drama, and it's not that. Right. And then you're left with this thing, this misshapen thing. And it's 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 too bad. And the, the reason I wanted to talk about this movie in depth with you on this show is because it looks and sounds like it should be down the middle, what we would have once called Oscar bait. Yes. And when we were doing all the Oscar previews, several people wrote us. I'm like, why aren't you talking about the Goldfinch? You're supposed to be excited about the Goldfinch. And we had heard tell of what was to come. And that's why we weren't talking about it. The buzz wasn't good on this movie like five months ago. So there has not been a huge effort to get people excited about it because I think everybody knew what happened when they saw the first assembly and they were like, shit, we don't, we don't really have what we had hoped to have, which happens, as you said. Sometimes you don't just don't got it. But I wonder if whatever we think of as quote-unquote Oscar bait is, one, was that illusory in the first place? Like, did that never even exist? Because if Jojo Rabbit has emerged from Toronto as the frontrunner, and it's a movie in which Taika Waititi is dressed like a comical Hitler, maybe Oscar bait doesn't mean anything? But that's just new Oscar bait. It's changed. Mm. New Oscar bait is... um politically motivated in whatever version of political you want to. And I don't mean to sound dismissive. I Like, I honestly don't because it's important to make movies about things. Your movie should have ideas. The Goldfinch actually doesn't have an idea. And that's part of the problem in addition to all of the filmmaking problems. But new Oscar bait is, I'm saying something about myself when I uh, say that I like this movie. Uh, yes. And I and honestly, I think Hustlers fits into that mm-hmm. a little because there has been a female empowerment um wow, I want to be like J-Lo vibe to Hustlers as well. And, you know, the scammer mentality and we're getting one up on institutions or whatever, which, again, this movie is not really about. It's about crime and friendship, but which are also valid subjects. But I I think that the Goldfinch would have been Oscar bait 10, 15 years ago. You're, I think you're right. I don't totally know because there is obviously a long yeah. history of bad literary adaptations made by Hollywood. But the thing that you, you've really hit on is kind of what is the new version of this, which is this perilous divide between self-identity and identity politics. And we think that it's moonlight and self-identity and knowing thyself and sharing who thyself is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is becoming increasingly identity politics. And it becomes a thunderdome of debate and conversation about whether Green Book should be canceled or not. And that is— and, and then a reaction of, no, you can't tell me what to cancel or what to like. Exactly. And this is an echo chamber that really ultimately only concerns somewhere between three and 10,000 people who are voting for awards, but reflects upon a TV show that airs once a year that has 20 million viewers. And then we use that as this gauntlet, this cultural gauntlet. 
And it, it's literally the reason why I like doing this show, but it also is the problem with this podcast. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I said it last week. We're in a prison of our own making, and we're a part of it. And I have been yelling about how I'm not going to participate in the Joker discourse, but, like, I am participating in the Joker discourse already. So— Can't wait. Yeah. So if we want to ask this week, are they running, the goldfinch is definitively not, not running. running. <laughs> because it cannot run because it has no legs. It can hardly fly. Let's go to the big race. Well, Mama, look at me now. I'm a star. This is a completely unsupportable, unreasonable, too early set of best picture predictions. Great. We're Love probably going to talk we about this. We were literally this. just talking about how we're the problem and we are the problem. I'm, I'm content to know thyself, as, as, as all great films do. And the emergence of Jojo Rabbit, as we said, I think firmly puts it in the conversation. Yes. Um, yeah. We know that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in the conversation. I, I'm 99.7% sure that Marriage Story is going to coast okay. straight to the awards. You are not allowed to talk about it until I see it. I haven't said okay. anything. Great. I haven't said anything. None of the other movies that are on my list here have been released. Neither I've, have only, only Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has been released of everything you just said. That's a great point. Yeah. I've seen some of these movies that I've got on the list as quote unquote locks. Okay. I want to know what you make of them. But there's three different categories here. I just shared with you what I, I deem in. Mm-hmm. You've put those in red? They're in red. Red means go in this case. Okay. <laughs> because you, there is also a section that's in green, but it means stop? Green means okay. slow down. That's Because we don't know. Plane Sean is on one. <laughs> <laughs> I've just gotten off a plane. That might explain the level of unique intensity I have right now. Here are the other movies. Joker, Parasite, The Irishman. Ford versus Ferrari and the two popes, I would say all feel like they're in strong contention based on what we saw out of the festivals with the rare exception of The Irishman, which no one has seen, which is going to a festival in two weeks, but is a Martin Scorsese movie. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot which of... Which was literally advertised during the last Oscar ceremony with the famous in theaters and on Netflix ad. Yeah, I mean, I, you love to see it in many ways <laughs> as the creator of a podcast. Uh Joker is probably the 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 diciest, I think, of the movies I've got on my list here. And I've got a bunch that I've kind of deemed doubtful that I could be mm-hmm. way off about. Um, it's very hard to know what to make of Joker at this point because it we haven't was, seen it. And the reception at Venice and Toronto was different. And it's already lost in the culture war, even though a very limited number of people have seen it. And I think it's going to be a big, big, big hit. It's mm-hmm. going to be like, it is going to be the venom of this season. And so with that, it probably means it's going to linger uh, kind of regardless of how people feel about it. Everyone is acknowledging Joaquin Phoenix has, has done great work. Yeah. Um, anything here seem a little off to you in that in that fivesome? Well, I was just going to ask you, do you think Joker being a hit would go against it in terms of the Oscar? It would for wi- for winning things, but I don't think for being nominated. Just in terms of the Academy Deigning to honor a superhero movie, if it's like arty superhero, then you know, does does the box office performance take away from the artiness? I I'm just I'm just talking aloud. It's a good question. I I, I couldn't say. I mean, Venom was not up for any Oscars last year, yeah. but um, Black Panther was, and that's true. Yeah, as we mentioned, Heath Ledger's already won for this part, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that it being a success wouldn't you know would not affect its chances. I feel pretty strongly about Parasite and Ford versus Ferrari and the Two Popes. Um, 
the Irishman will have to wait and see. And then the other two I've got down here are Little Women in 1917. Why are they green? Green means slow down a little bit, as I said. <laughs> Maybe just tap the brakes. Sanity. But okay. no one has seen either of these movies. Right. And they operate in this bubble of buzz yeah. and anticipation. I mean, in a lot of ways, they're like old Oscar bait. They are. They, that's a very and good And they are coming out on Christmas Day, I believe, both of them, which was also old Oscar timing. And the, the whole calendar has moved up, um, both because of the literal Oscar ceremony being moved up and also because everyone just like talks themselves to death before Christmas at this point. There are not a lot of films that um, can succeed being released in December anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Vice was able to get a lot of nominations and Beale Street was able to get a lot of nominations, but those movies didn't really win very much. And these are two movies that have a slightly, I don't know about a bigger profile, but a little bit more classical look. Obviously, a, a major adaptation from Greta Gerwig, who has previously been nominated for Best Picture, and Sam Mendes, who, um, you know, has both directed some of the biggest movies of all time in the James Bond films that he's made and also made American Beauty. Yeah. And American Beauty problematic icon that it is of 1999, 20 years later, is still one of those major Oscar history movies. And he's he's got a huge reputation in the Academy and he's made what sounds like also with Roger Deakins, a like stunty one take war movie. Uh, Dunkirk, but World War One. Yes, which yeah. has never been done. If you look at the history of one-take movies, and I was reading up on them this this, okay. this weekend, um, if if people fell over themselves for Birdman, what will they do for a war right. movie that does the Birdman thing? We'll have to wait and see about those two. Hopefully, we'll talk to Greta and Sam on the show. That would be nice. That would be wonderful. I, I, I'm, I'm an admirer of both of them. Right. Here's a long list of doubtful movies. There's so many. Should we put these on the internet? Like, what do we do? How do we keep track of this over the next three and a half months. I mean, do you want to put your weird reverse color system like on the internet Ooh. for everyone to make fun of? I might have I to call David Shoemaker to help me yeah. uh, okay. visualize this a little bit. Okay. Our, our genius art director. Um, I've seen some of these and you've seen some of these, but mm-hmm. we've seen, not seen most of these. Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, The Farewell. A lot of prognosticators, including Scott Feinberg, has The Farewell in the mix right now okay. yeah. on, on the best picture list. I'm a little bit more dubious of it getting across the line, but that probably depends on what we see in the next two months. I think I am, The Farewell is being marketed so well and purely to me. And I am in the mix with The Farewell and everything that Lulu Wang is doing on Twitter and that I don't trust it. I'm like, this is so for Amanda that Academy voters don't care. Can we actually do a sidebar inspired by this? Yeah. So have you seen The Peanut Butter Falcon? No. So The Peanut Butter Falcon is an independent film released by Roadside earlier this year. And it is one of the indie box office hits of the year. It crossed $15 million this weekend. It stars Shia LaBeouf. And it's produced by Albert Berger and, and Ron Yerksa, who produced the film that we recently did a rewatchables about, uh, Election. Oh. And The Peanut Butter Falcon basically has a very similar profile to The Farewell. It's a very personal story. Um, it stars... Uh, Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson, John Hawks, Bruce Dern, um, and a man named Zach Gotzigan, who plays a character with Down syndrome. And it's a very uplifting kind of word of mouth hit. And it, it's the kind of movie that like with, an, with a campaign, with a quote unquote cool campaign, falls into the same sort of Last Black Man in San Francisco, The Farewell. There's been a handful of movies this year that have done pretty good indie business. And this movie is one of them, but it does not have the, like, cultural cachet. 
I'm going to make a tech comparison to you. Okay. So the Peanut Butter Falcon feels like the Facebook indie movie and the Farewell feels like the Instagram indie movie. Indie yes. movie. And I am inspired by that compare to that comparison because like I have just gotten the Farewell content on Instagram a lot. It is actually like meeting me where I live. Yes. Um, Can I tell you what the TikTok movie is? Sure. It's called The Lighthouse. I can't fucking okay. wait for The no, Lighthouse to come out. Do, have you ever used TikTok? No, but no, I just go with I me on this. I have used TikTok. No, it's literally the TikTok movie is Hustlers, which is why oh. it is oh. made money and, and nothing else made as much money. Okay, maybe but. the old Parchment and Quill movie is The Lighthouse. Yes. Okay. Great. Congratulations to you. I love The Lighthouse. Anyway, I just, I feel like the Instagram audience is like one audience and it's certainly Instagram sells a lot of products, like products across the world at this point. But I don't know whether the Academy is, like, on that aesthetic level as I am. We're going to find out. It has been served up to you effectively. Mm -hmm. The Peanut Butter Falcon has been served up to a lot of audience as well. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Warm reaction. Maybe. Just Mercy. I thought that that was kind of a muted reaction to this movie. Yes. Daniel Destin Cretton's film starring Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson, both of whom are huge stars they emerged from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to appear in this legal drama, also starring Jamie Foxx. And people were like, it's pretty good. <laughs> Seemed respectful That's was the response. Respectful. That's yeah. not exactly what you want no. out of a festival. You know, remember Us? That was a movie that came out yeah. this year. I don't think that's going to make it to award season. I, I liked Us. I think it doesn't totally make sense, but I don't care. I liked the conversations that I had about it here in this in the confines of this podcast and not on the internet. But I, Yes, I'm proud of the way that we covered it here. Uh, the report, similarly, I think a very respectful reception since it's been playing all the festivals after Sundance. The Lion King, which is, of course, a movie with a bad story, which we discussed here on this show. <laughs> um, you know, I have Ad Astra on the doubtful list. If you're interested in Ad Astra, I would encourage you to tune into this show later this week because Amanda and I are going to go over the moon for Brad Pitt and talk about our top fives. And I've got an interview with James Gray, who is in the ring of fame on the big picture. He is truly one of our most elite guests, and I had a great long conversation with him. I don't know. It might be a little too meditative for the Academy, who is super excited about Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we'll see. Um, I Certainly my version of self-identity comes in Ad Astra. And, I'm so excited to talk with you about this movie. Okay. Waves, I mentioned. I think there were some really strong, great reviews early on, particularly for me, among other people. Some really negative pans coming out of TIFF, too, which I thought was interesting. And I think that that movie has a chance to actually be a similar kind of box office hit the way that The Farewell is. Whether it's an Oscar movie, we'll see. Um, Pain and Glory, Almod of Ars film. Dolomite is my name. Netflix is, I would say, also similarly warmly received. People being very fired up about Eddie Murphy being back. You know, to your point about J-Lo, someone also pointed out that Eddie will definitely be nominated for a Golden Globe. And he will be campaigning on SNL in December. Yes. So, is that a best picture thing? No. But... It'll, it'll be around. Uh, other things, Uncut Gems, we'll see. It'd be amazing if Uncut Gems went to the best picture race. That would just be glorious. I don't see it happening, but we'll see. The Laundromat, The Aeronauts, Motherless Brooklyn, Booksmart. Remember Booksmart? Yeah, I don't. That doesn't seem like that's happening. Not going to happen. Okay. Rocket Man, Honey Boy. Oh, yeah. Toy Story 4, Avengers Endgame. You're just naming movies you like now. <laughs> Thanos will be nominated for best supporting Thanos. Thanos will be there at the ceremony. That's the thing. Like, just, you can make this joke now and then he's going to show up and then you're going to have another one of your corporate existential crises. I'm just be like, you are the problem. So Thanos is running. That's okay. all I'm saying. All right. Last Black Man in San Francisco, The Good Liar. That's a movie we haven't seen yet. No one's seen that. 
That's a Warner Brothers drama starring Ian McKellen and I believe Judy Dench. Oh, right. Dame Judy Dench. Feels like an Amanda movie. Yes, but I was literally just racking my brain being like, which one is this? Yeah. So that's that's just not good. They're not on Instagram. No. A movie that was extremely well received at TIFF, though it's probably not an Oscar movie as Knives Out. Hold your tongue. Mm, we'll no, see. No, you're probably right, but I'm excited. We'll see. We're all excited about that. The Lighthouse I mentioned, Gemini Man. There's the, there's a Will Smith movie coming out in five weeks. I, don't I know it? Okay. Do you? I, I know. It's directed by Ang Lee, I for fuck's aware. sake. I am fucking aware. Crazy times. Judy, also Renee Zellweger, will certainly be nominated for Best Actress. The movie will not. And Harriet. Now, there's six movies on this list that I've deemed unknown. The first is Dark Waters, which we've mentioned a couple of times. Todd Haynes is also a legal drama which might threaten Just Mercy's chances of getting some acknowledgement. And then Queen and Slim, Melina Matsukas's adaptation of Lena Waithe and James Frey's original story. Tremendous, tremendous sentence. James Frey. I'm aware. And Lena Waithe. Yeah, no, I know. It's just, that's amazing stuff. Daniel Kaluuya, though. Love, love that Daniel guy. Kaluuya. Love that guy. Yeah. He could do no wrong. Star Wars Episode Nine. You heard of it? Yeah, it's uh, The Rise of Skywalker. Nailed it. That's wow. two in two a row. Weeks in a row that I got the name right. I'm very proud you of know you. Who I love I love Adam Driver. So, I'm excited. I like Ray. What's her real name in real life? It doesn't matter. Um her name Daisy is Daisy Ridley. Ridley. Daisy Ridley. I like Daisy Ridley. Yeah, she's you great. know, I'm I'm excited to find out what what's up with the gang. You know, I want to know what happens. I was chatting with Bill Simmons this weekend and we were talking about Adam Driver and he said, "So that guy just might be Pacino?" Which is just crazy to consider. Yeah. But he just might be. Cats. <laughs> I, Cats. Cats I is just, coming. I am just one woman trying to get through award season. And I, you keep putting, everyone keeps making me consider cats every day. And I'm tired. And it's only September. Maybe we sing on the Cats episode. We've been threatening us. Okay. Maybe we should do a full musical episode like that episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. We just choose different songs from the musical songbooks of the great writers of the great white way but what will you do besides cats mm, well i as in a nod to greta gerwig i would do everybody says no oh which yeah I think would that be would perfect be great for Oscar we can season. put you in that dress that is the lovely striped dress that sersha is wearing um i will not be wearing a dress on this okay. show bombshell which is the film about Fox News mm-hmm. starring Charlize. Talk about new Oscar bait. Yeah, it's true. True. That could be, that could be some self-identity. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's the only way in. But. Yeah. And then I wanted to lastly mention a movie to you called The Banker. Okay. Are, do you know anything about The Banker? I Googled it. Okay. What'd you learn? Uh, that Apple bought it. Apple bought it in July. Yeah. And they're going to put it on their service, Apple TV Plus or whatever. Apple Plus? Apple TV Plus. Apple TV? I think it's Apple Plus. Apple, no, Apple TV Plus. Yeah, I got to tell you, there's way too much TV. Yeah. Just I know. That, I'm post TV. I told you. Succession God. and movies. That's where I am in 2019. God. It's great. Join me. So most of what Apple TV Plus is going to be doing is series television. We saw some clips from the morning show and from C to series that they're going to be premiering, I think, on November 1st when that service begins. We don't know the release date of this movie, The Banker, which is a true story about, uh, written, written and directed by George Nolfi, who you may recall from The Adjustment Bureau. Do you remember that Matt Damon movie? Yeah, they wear the hats, right? They wear the hats. And <laughs> in, the, in The Banker, um, Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie play two black businessmen in the 1950s who want to start a real estate company but know that they need essentially a white face to launch their business. And so they hire a local man played by Nicholas Holt to be the face of their company. That's the log line. And then Craziness ensues, hijinks all over the place. We got a movie. 
I have no idea if Apple can platform an Oscar movie. It's interesting that this is happening. It's not even totally confirmed that it's going to come out this year. But maybe? In which case, what you have is basically three films from Netflix that have a strong chance to be nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. You have three films that are running from Amazon. I don't think any of which are going to be nominated. You've got an Apple movie. Mm -hmm. You've got a bunch of A24 movies. And you've also got two movies from Sony, which hasn't had a movie nominated for Best Picture in like eight years in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So it's a really weird collection of companies putting out these movies. It's not like the Weinstein Company. Thank, thank the Lord. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a it's a wild time Things in Hollywood. It does actually reflect the current business state, which is why we are interested in these things. Now, I think it's tricky because who wins the Oscar won't actually reflect like what companies exist in one to two to five years. Definitely true. But it is. It'll a, be just TikTok. We'll all be on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you joke, but we, we may well be on TikTok. I actually think it's kind of charming, TikTok. Anyway. It is, it's a mechanism in order to talk about these issues. And it's like more fun than talking about, you know, business reports or quarterly statements or whatever. But it's certainly, it's wild out there. Is Thanos going to win? Um, No. Well, in what sense? Is he going to win the Oscar or is he going to win like the ultimate universal galactic battle? Well, he lost that. Well, he won and then he lost. But I actually don't know. Are you going to tell me now that the timeline proves that actually he lost because they went and changed the time? I don't know. It's You okay. know what's one crazy thing about this fall is that there are no Marvel movies. It's the first fall in years in which there is no Marvel movie. And so we have kind of an interesting opening. You know, I've gotten so used to every fall looking at the Guardians of the Galaxy movie or Doctor Strange or any of these movies that come out in this time. Nothing. Nothing till 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 next year with Black Widow. Is that just because of a production? I think that they break? want. I think they wanted Endgame to be representative of the finality of this phase of the storytelling, but it it does change the dynamics of Hollywood in a lot of ways because you've got you know you've got Joker and that's going to make a lot of money, but it's unique that we're going to be spending more time talking about Oscars than talking about Marvel for a change. You know, there's going to be a long time before we talk about Marvel. Great. Except for Thanos. We love Thanos. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. We'll see you next Friday on, on The Big Picture talking about our, our boy Brad Pitt. It's Brad Pitt season. Thanks to Amanda. Let's go to my conversation now with the documentarian Matt Turnauer, who's got a great new film called Where Is My Roy Cohn? We had a long and deep conversation about the complexities of that historic and quite controversial American figure. And we talked a little bit about his other movies, like Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. So check that out. Delighted to be joined by Matt Turnauer. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you. Matt, I'm so fascinated by your documentaries, especially your new one. But I'm curious how you decide to train your eye on a subject, because you've had some very unique choices, especially in the last few years. Well, I think you kind of know it when you uh, come upon it. Um, I don't know, an idea just sort of settles in and I, I, I just have this feeling. I, you know, I began as a journalist, uh, mostly for Vanity Fair, writing something that almost doesn't exist anymore, the 10,000 word magazine article, um, which is akin to a documentary in a certain way. That's sort of almost like a documentary treatment. It's a, it's a nonfiction story. 
So uh, when you start to get an idea and then you live with it for a little bit, anyone who makes movies or writes anything knows when you realize, oh, I could live with this for a year. And that's what you want. Uh, if you feel like you can't live with it for a year or two, um, sometimes with a documentary or a book, of course, it can drag on, uh, then you probably should drop it and move on to something else. So um, that's how I get started. Do most of your films, Studio 54, Roy Cohn, do they come, do they originate with you and something you want to do? Or does someone come to you and say, you should think about this? Both really. Uh for the most part, they originate with me. Uh, in the case of Studio 54, that was an idea that wasn't mine. Uh, it, it, it was really the uh, notion of Ian Schrager, who was the surviving co-founder of Studio 54, and he's someone I'd written about. But I didn't write about him in the context of Studio 54. I wrote about him in a totally different context. About a hotelier. His, uh, yeah, and, and really through uh, the prism of architecture, design, creativity, and imp- being an impresario, but in a different way. And we never talked about studio. And I wasn't innately interested in... Uh, well, let's put it this way. I didn't have a lurid fascination with the subject uh, for whatever reason. Some people are just obsessed with Studio 54, and I, I wasn't one of those people. The period of Studio 54 and the New York of that time and all the elements are interesting to me. Uh, and I think that's one reason that uh, he called me because I imagine uh, the first question anyone asks him is, uh, what was Studio 54 really like? I always wanted to go there, and I, I never asked him that Uh then I spent a year with him asking him that every day. Uh, so that was one that wasn't my own, but it was adjacent to everything that I'm fascinated with. And it was that kind of deep cultural dive and telling, a, in a way, a counter narrative. A lot of my films I, I would classify as counter narratives uh, or defi- a definitive story. Uh, I think they all fit into that category as well. At least I hope they do. The other ones are mostly my idea, I would, I would say. They're a little bit of a... I don't know, a parallel track with Roy Cohn and Studio 54 in some respects. We do see Roy kind of in the lap of luxury in the 70s in New York at some point, but obviously the film spans decades. Sure. Where does your interest in him come from? And then how do you embark on making a movie about someone like this who is, of course, not alive anymore? Yeah, well, there are two kinds of uh, yarns, you know, one where the subject's alive and one where the subject's dead. People frequently ask me which I prefer. I actually have an answer for that. I I prefer it when uh, the subject's alive because uh, you can have a cinema verite documentary then, which I uh, love making, and I think that's a really wonderful form. Scotty Uh, in The Secret History of Hollywood is like that. Scotty is a mostly cinema verite. It's got a little bit of archival in there. Um, my first film, Valentino, The Last Emperor, is uh, the same. It's mostly verite film. Uh, one of my big influences is uh, Grey Gardens and all the work of the Maisels, uh, who were the directors of that film, and all of the legends of cinema verite, uh, or in, in America, we call it direct cinema. <laughs> um, and uh, Penny Baker and Wiseman, and I'm leaving people out. But uh, those, are, I think, are the the great heroes of the form. Uh, but that's not the question you asked me, actually. The question was, if I'm recalling, was about uh, how do I tackle Roy Cohn? Where did it come from? And uh, Well, actually, um, the idea originated while I was cutting Studio 54 because Roy Cohn, for those of you who don't know, uh, was the lawyer for Studio 54. So if you see this movie, which is called Studio 54, um, which is widely available on Netflix, uh, 
Cone is a character in it because he was this uh, picaresque man about New York, uh, the ultimate power broker at the time. But he was also an attorney you could hire to protect you and fix things and get you out of scrapes. And uh, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell had him on retainer. But he was also a denizen of Studio 54. So he was living this decadent kind of closety life uh, at Studio, which was the ultimate place to do that at the time. I was making that movie in 2016, an election year, if you recall. And uh, with the election going into the background, I'm watching all this archival footage of Roy Cohn. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the greatest character I've ever seen in archival footage. I mean, he just explodes out of it. He's so assertive and crazed and articulate, but also bizarre and um, flamboyant, I suppose would be the um, accurate term for this. Uh, so I keep thinking to myself, knowing his connection to Donald Trump, by the way, at the time, uh, wow, that would be a great movie. Uh, no one's done it. But then I would put it out of my mind thinking, well, Hillary Clinton's going to be president. And who would want to really go there? Um, because the Trump connection was a refreshing uh, uh, purpose for a Roy Cohn film. Made him relevant again. Yes. So uh, needless to say, um, things went awry uh, electorally, in my humble opinion. (laughs) And that night after I was in a hotel and after I opened my room wine, which I never open, I drank the entire bottle of (laughs) moderately good red wine and uh, also some ice cream. And I (laughs) thought, what I've got to write this idea down. And I wrote a treatment for this film. because it's not an exaggeration to say that uh, Roy Cohn invented Donald Trump. He certainly invented the businessman Trump and the political Trump. And I would go so far as to say that he uh, created a president from beyond the grave. Now, that's a good story. So what do you do then? Because as you say, you like to use the verite style, but you can't really use it for a film like this. So do you begin contacting people or you, do you leap into archival? What's your first move? Well, I kind of figure out what I know and what my um, notion of it is. And in this case, I knew a bit. Uh, and then I just start reading uh, to satisfy my notion of it. And then I, obviously your, your point of view changes the more research you do, uh, with a film, you know, you need money. Uh, so (laughs) fundraising's, uh, the key thing. So I, I pursued this. I just decided I wanted to do this. This was the film I needed to make. I thought it was urgent because of, uh, Trumpism. And, uh, it was a response in a lot of ways. So challenging to raise money for a movie with that kind of point of view. Yes and no. Uh, I don't think this movie would have been made if Trump had lost the election because I think it would have been hard to raise the money for this. Uh, people always want to know, well, why now? I mean, that's really the the main question and distributors and financiers ask. And uh, you really couldn't give a good answer to that question if Trump had lost. Um, unfortunately, we were in a position where he won. So uh, it wasn't an obvious idea when I started calling around to studios. Um, it was kind of, um, well, what's your thought? And then my sense was it would be uphill. So I looked for other financing channels, which of which there are many, um, private equity. And 
really that's a great way to make a movie because you have a lot of creative freedom. And with this film, because it's so political, I thought, oh, okay, well, let's try that route. Now, uh, I went immediately into the corridors of um, finance in New York City, uh, which is um, a, a real culture of mostly left-wing people, and some of them have uh, deep pockets, and uh, asked around. And uh, there was a kind of reticence that surprised me, actually. It seemed to come from fear, which made me want to do the movie even more because it seemed to be an unnamed sort of McCarthyite fear of, well, is the, who is this guy going to be as president? Will there be witch hunts? Will the IRS be focusing on me? Do I really want to have my name on a project like this. Well, that actually made me even want to do it more. I, it's not that anyone said it aloud, but you could sense it, which I think is a real problem in the current political climate. And really, it's the whole point of the project. So there was a kind of meta issue with raising the money for this. Uh, we got some seed money from some amazing people that you know gave us early dollars to get started. And I started right away. And I'll tell you what I did. But uh, ultimately, um, we took it to a program called Sundance Catalyst, uh, which is um, a wonderful way to get an indie film financed. And there were some amazing uh, people there who became patrons of the film. Um, and I'll single out Lynn Lear and um, her husband, Norman Lear, who are so um, committed to uh, great political causes. And they were very early in on this film. So you get a little bit of seed money and you're starting to make the film. Are you imagining that it's going to be driven by interviews with people that knew Cone? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that was something that I really wanted. Uh, there are a couple genres of interviewee here. Uh, people that knew him, people who were related to him. Um, you know, here's a, a guy whose sexuality is very much at issue um, for reasons that I'm sure we'll discuss in um, – the next few moments, but, uh, so lovers, um, he's gay. Uh, were there any people who, with whom he had relationships who were willing to talk about this kind of really central issue with him because he was not only gay, but he was uh, in the closet and, uh, probably the leading hypocrite about he was defiant. the closet. Yeah, exactly. Which I think we should talk about in great depth because it's really, uh, it's really one of the very relevant points. You capture an amazing interview with him. That is the most direct conversation you can have with a person <laughs> in which he is just denying. Yeah. So, well, let's leap right to it then. Uh, in all, well, okay, let's go back. Uh, he's a gay man. He's in the closet. Uh, he was born in 1927. So he comes of age, uh, really, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And then he's very, um, he's famous by the time he's in his mid-20s in the 1950s. And he is in a position of extraordinary power for, for someone that young. He's the chief counsel to Senator Joseph McCarthy. So we think of McCarthy as uh, uh, pursuing communists or alleged communists. And for the most part, they were not alleged communists. Uh, they were not communists. They were simply uh, said to be, and he was persecuting them. Uh, and doing what we know as witch hunts. Uh, but he also uh, persecuted uh, gay people who were uh, suspected as being disloyal or uh, vulnerable to blackmail or whatever else you could think of to smear the reputation of a, of a gay person. And I think that's a less known aspect of his 
work in the 50s too, that part of it that you tell in the film. Yes, and I wanted to highlight it for that reason. It, it has names. It was called The Lavender Scare. Uh, and he was, Cohn was a real fomenter of it, as was McCarthy. McCarthy, you know, was really an empty vessel. He didn't care about much, really had no real uh, ideology. He was just wanted to be a demagogue. And I mean, I kind of think it was a right winger and Cohn was as well. But Cohn really is kind of the puppeteer. And uh, there we get parallels to the present with Trump, who's an uh, empty vessel and a demagogue and and can be uh, manipulated, and Cohen indeed was the one who sort of set him on this course. But uh, all through the McCarthy era, um, Cohen is hiding his sexuality, and uh, then a very bizarre event occurs uh, that everyone knows the name of. It's called the Army McCarthy hearings, but no one really uh, knows the the fine uh, grain details of it. And Cohen is at the center of it, uh, and it's a very personal kind of almost. Um, explosive er reality TV moment because they're televised at the dawn of television, and uh, Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn are the uh, the central, the focal characters of it. And Army McCarthy is all about Roy Cohn wanting to get special favors for a um, very handsome Army private who's a friend of his and maybe a, a crush or a love interest. No one really knows. And his this man's name is e, uh, G. David Shine. Uh, he was almost a household name in the period, but he's been forgotten virtually. So um, Cohn convinces McCarthy to uh, go after the Army because Cohen wants a special favor from the army, which is a promotion for his his boy crush, David Shine, from private to general. Now, this sounds absurd and made up, but it's not. Uh, he had called the secretary of the army trying to flex his muscle as a, um, a aid to this the terrifying Senator McCarthy and said, Shine's uh, promoted to a general and he's going to be uh, based out of the penthouse of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And you do that, or um, I will destroy you. I will, I will ruin the army. That was the literal threat. We know that because the secretary of the army testified uh, in, on live television during these Army McCarthy hearings. So Cohn's response to that no from the army was, I will wreck you. Uh, and then he gets McCarthy to accuse the army of being infiltrated by communists and homosexuals. Uh, which should remind you of something because this sort of accusing your uh, accuser of what you're so-called guilty of is a tactic we're all living through and Trump deploys a lot. And he doubtlessly learned it from Roy Cohn and Roy Cohn uh, practiced it in the McCarthy period. So here you have this extraordinary um, uh, TV moment, probably the first TV moment. Uh, and Cohn orchestrates it really. And he makes himself into a reality TV star before anyone knew what that was. And Trump knew, learned all those lessons, you know. Uh, so this hypocrisy is set uh, where he's kind of going after gay people. There are countercharges that he's gay too, but they're not overt because you really couldn't say the word gay on television or accuse anyone. It was not thought to be proper. But Cohn, meanwhile, did do it surreptitiously, but he was immune because no one would would accuse him publicly of it. So he he went for decades like this um, as this kind of hypocrite, sexual hypocrite. 
And uh, he got more famous, and we can talk about how and why. But um, at a certain point, he was profiled by 60 Minutes, and Morley Safer, the great Morley Safer, is the correspondent of this um, on this interview. And he um, alludes to Cohen's sexuality, uh, but refers to him as like a permanent bachelor who's never found the right woman. That was in the early 70s. And then later on, in the late 70s, there's another 60 Minutes profile that Mike Wallace, uh, who's the harder-edged guy. Fewer illusions in that interview. Does. And then it's later, the sexual revolution and gay liberation are in the air. And Wallace goes after him. Uh, and Cohen, by the way, just to add to the, uh, to the picaresque nature of the story, is at this time dying of AIDS. But still not um, coming out. No, I want as an aside. I mean, all of this should be a private matter for someone, but he's a public figure who traded in this hypocrisy. So it's really at issue. And Mike Wallace really does his thing and and goes after him in that Mike Wallace way. And he says, um, uh, "People say you're homosexual. Why don't you admit it?" And Cohen does this extraordinary ballet, basically saying, "I don't really think you can." Uh, accuse me of being gay because I'm so butch, basically. <laughs> I'm a tough guy. I, what's what's gay about that? And he does this whole kind of prevarication act, and it's, it's absurd, and especially uh, with hindsight. Uh, I don't think, again, it would be an issue except his, his hypocrisy about his sexuality was so epic that uh, it's fascinating and, and very painful to watch uh, from our perch here in uh, 2019. One thing I'm interested in about, in your other films, it feels like you have an admiration or an understanding about unlocking someone's importance, and it seems like you have a connection to them. Cone, you know, it could be argued as one of the arch-villains of the 20th century, and I wonder if, you, if there has to be something in someone like that to admire to spend all that time with. No, I, 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 there's nothing to admire and work on. <laughs> so what's it like I, to spend so much time on a villain then? Yeah, I'd never done it before. I, I mean, I made a movie that's a two-hander with a with a, a villain. Um, Robert Moses is pretty villainous. True. And yeah. they have a lot in common, uh, Cohn and Moses. Yes, they were power brokers yeah. in, New York, in the New York of mid-century. Uh, they do have a lot in common. Both Jewish power brokers that's also, right. by the way, who were kind of not really into – uh, embracing their Judaism as a sort of denialism there as well. Uh, well, this was uh, another moment of doubt at the origin of the project. Uh, when I saw that uh, it was going to happen, um, it had occurred to me and then it reoccurred to me, oh, have I just sentenced myself to a year of um, being disturbed by this and kind of living in the muck of this guy's mess his messy life and would that depress me? And I was all, you know, we're all in this kind of Trump mass zeitgeist clinical depression <laughs> of some sort or other. Uh, so what was that going to do? And I, this was a really surprising thing to me. I didn't find myself feeling that way. Uh, he is so uh, strange a, a person that uh, excavating through the research and watching all of these uh, really uh, like outlandish antics that were televised uh, throughout his life because he was such a, um, I believe, press whore is the technical <laughs> term, uh, 
was fascinating, luridly fascinating, no doubt. But there's, I'll take luridly fascinating. I mean, if you like film noir, for instance, you might like this movie. Uh, I made it as a film noir, really. And then I realized why I was doing that. Uh, I did it I did it on two fronts. I wanted it to be, because a lot of it takes place in the 70s, and there's a, a sort of color noir period that Hollywood has that I'm a big admirer of. My, there's a really obscure movie uh, that uh, called Hustle. With, it's a Burt Reynolds and Catherine Deneuve film uh, directed by Robert Aldrich, who's a favorite director of mine. No one's seen this movie, but it's a color film noir. And it has this kind of like brown and Bushmills scotch sort of tonality to it. Uh, yellows, that kind of like 70s brown and yellow period. And I, I anyway, that was the palette for this film um, on a, on a uh, formal uh, level, but the, on content level, film noir um, really is relevant because there's a nihilism to film noir. And what you realize when you're caught up in these noir stories uh, is that um, the characters and the protagonists are so empty and so nihilistic at times that uh, there's not really a resolution to them. They end in things like nuclear explosions sometimes <laughs> and everyone dies. Uh, famous Robert Aldrich movie that ends that way. Yeah, well, though, Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. Uh, I, you have just gotten five gold stars for me. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to go to Staples and pick them up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, so there's one. Uh, and there's another one that's... Uh, You're with a no uh, film noir lover. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, I have not seen Hustle, though, so I'll Hustle is a treat. Uh, and White Heat, um, it's another one. Uh, ends with a kind of... Uh, the El Segundo oil refinery, if you're an L.A. Uh, person, uh, explodes. And <laughs> James Cagney is sitting on one of those round tanks and goes up in flames. <laughs> and then presumably the whole city catches fire. So that sort of burned down conflagration thing uh, really, I think, applies to Cohn. And I think we're all living that in, in the Trump world where he is, a, he is an arsonist. He wants to burn it down. And this movie, we haven't really gotten into this yet. This movie is no bleak movie about Donald Trump. It's really not uh, literally about Trump until Cohn meets Trump in the 70s and we go there. But uh, every minute of it's about now. It's funny because I didn't think that you put your thumb on it too much in the film. There's not actually not too much Trump. And in, in part, it seems like because they had a break. And they, so there is a, a separation of a kind between them. Well, they didn't meet until Cohen was um, an older man, actually. Um, so I didn't want to. Well, we're all marinating in Trump if you watch cable news or read the paper or do or anything or go on the Twitter machine. Uh, so. Why do that? I mean, that would be very unappealing. So I'm telling an oblique tale, really. It connects dots. And I, I this is something I like to do, actually. I don't really like to do the work for the audience. I'll, I'll kind of lay it all out. And you can bring your conclusions or leave with your conclusions. Uh, that's, that's a more, I think, elegant way to, to tell the tale. But you mentioned that the nihilism that you find in a noir and that you... You find in Cohn, and I wonder if having spent all this time studying his life and talking to people who knew him and who interviewed him, if there was, if there's anything else beneath the surface motivating him aside from maybe a self-loathing, an ego, a desire for power, is there anything else really 
that can make us understand why he lived that way. Well, probably there's some paging Dr. Freud stuff that the movie touches on that involves mommy and a little bit of daddy. And I, I, I'll unpack that for you because it is interesting. However, I really think it's the latter. I think eventually if you're um, purely transactional and you're playing for keeps, especially in an environment like New York of mid-century, which is was his candy land, uh, I think eventually you're playing a very nihilistic game. Uh, and I think that you end up on the sort of habit trail of oblivion. Um, there's someone's book title. <laughs> uh, and I really, I think he's empty. And I think Trump's empty, which is why they're so vexingly hard to uh, drive the stake through the heart of because you're driving it through uh, an empty corpse, really. And I think that's the moral of the story in a lot of ways. And um, that's why I go to film noir, because so many of those protagonists are are empty. You know, film noir um, comes about really because of the bomb. You know, it's a form that emerges almost by surprise uh, after the golden age of Hollywood and all of these kind of incredible Louis B. Mayer, happy ending, um, riding off in the sunset movies. And things go dark after the Second World War uh, for a number of reasons. But one of them is the fact that uh, humanity figures out how to obliterate itself. And what are you going to do with that? And, you know, um, as an L.A. native, uh, I will plant the flag for Los Angeles. People think that Hollywood or whatever, the whole city is full of stupid people. Far from the truth, you have to be really, really smart to write a, a good screenplay. So you have all these people out here who are really brainy people. And they're, you know, some of them were given the freedom to, to write films uh, that uh, were, you know, their own inspiration. And uh, Billy Wilder is a good example of that. Um, there were many of them, and they wrote these masterpieces that were contemplating uh, what it all meant. Uh, so Cohen's a special case. I mean, he comes out of the um, um, a different paranoid style of politics uh, that's related to the bomb because um, the communist wish hunts uh, were spurred on by uh, fear of the Soviets getting the A-bomb and all of us dying. and But then demagogic politics, which create the military-industrial complex, which President Eisenhower so presciently warns us about. And uh, Cohen is uh, a leading demagogue of that period, uh, an inventor and, and, and reinventor of paranoid uh, style of American politics. So uh, all of this dark paranoia that's endemic to our society uh, finds a, a vessel in, in Roy Cohn. Uh, we thought we were done with that, uh, which is another reason this is so surprising. I mean, the Trump presidency has knocked us all sideways. We weren't really expecting that. Uh, we didn't think it was still lurking there. And Cohn, I think, and Trump as, a, as an extension of Roy Cohn is, uh, is a symptom of that, that we haven't quite wrung this out of our system. Uh, weirdly, Russia's back uh, kind of you know, in this strange parallax way where the 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 chief executive is colluding with them, whereas before they were the enemy of the um of all that was um American. Uh, and Cohen was using that as a demagogue or 
tactic. So it's sort of turning in on itself in a really fascinating way. All this conversation about California and paranoia in Los Angeles also has me thinking about Scotty a lot. And I love that movie and I'm fascinated by that movie. And this idea of truth is a fascinating thing because obviously Roy Cohn really bent it to his will and did what he felt like was appropriate with it. In Scott and Scotty, there's this sense that we don't know what to believe. Do we just believe this lead figure who is incredibly charming and thoughtful and has this incredible recall? And you speak to all these people in his life and you present this compelling case, but also it's it's hard to believe, I think, for a lot of people when they watch a movie like that. Is it important for you to be a complete believer in the subjects that you're training your eyes on? Or is there a level of skepticism that you bring to every subject that you're looking at? I always bring skepticism because uh, I'm a journalist uh, first and last. I'm, I don't know, I'm equally a journalist and a filmmaker, let's put it that way. So I take a journalistic approach and you have to be skeptical. Um, Scotty, uh, this is a movie, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. So this was something, this was a story I had heard about for years and finally unraveled and got to the bottom of this this legendary gas station that was a, a brothel, which was about um, 5,000 feet from where we're sitting right now, by oh, the no way. Kidding. Yeah, <laughs> it's just down the road. Oh, wow. Um, I had come across this uh, story in my other reporting on a, an array of other topics that had to do with old LA and old Hollywood. And people had told me about this gas station and as a, you know, I wrote for Vanity Fair for a long time. So you, when things come up, you write them down and, you know, maybe this would be something that I could pursue as a story. And I kept on hearing from older gay guys, uh, some of them who were famous um, or very prominent in the city, that there was a gas station in Hollywood and it was a brothel and the cars were lined up there at around five o'clock every night. And um, people would go there to get into trouble, which was the euphemism that the, these these older gentlemen used. One of the people who told me about it was Merv Griffin, who was uh, never out, uh, but lived apparently a double life. And then another one was Robert Wolf, who was an architect, uh, very prominent in the city at the time. So I thought, okay, what is this thing? I never really got very far with it. And then one day I'm sitting with uh, Gore Vidal, the writer, and uh, I was a close friend of his, and I was uh, his executor and his editor for some of his writing even. And we're sitting in his house in Hollywood, and he says, I, I want to see Scotty. And I'm saying, who's Scotty? He said, well, he was a pimp who had a gas station, and I really need to get in touch with him. And it was almost an out-of-body moment. I was like, he's alive? Is this the same person? He's alive? He said, oh, yes, he lives in Laurel Canyon. I just misplaced his phone number. Uh, and, you know, Vidal was so grand, he would say, anyone sitting there was like, why don't you do some secretarial task for me? <laughs> so uh, I knew who to call, actually, because uh, there had been a book about Catherine Hepburn that had come out a few months before. And a colleague of mine uh, at Vanity Fair, Bill Mann, wrote the book. And I knew that, actually knew that he had talked to the gas station guy, but I thought maybe, oh, he must be dead. This was an interview he did years ago. And uh, I just never pursued it. And uh, I called Bill Mann. I said, is this Scotty the same? And he said, oh, yes, the same one. I said, is it alive? Oh, yes. 
uh, sure, I'll give you, I, for, I lost his phone number, I'll give you his address. So he gave me the address, I wrote it on a post-it note, and next time I was at Vidal's house, I put the post-it note on the little table where he kept his bottle of scotch, so I knew that he would see it. And uh, <laughs> next time, I was living in New York at the time, next time I was out, I walk into the house and Scotty Bowers was there. So he'd written him a letter, uh, so 19th century, right? And <laughs> Scotty responded immediately, and they became inseparable for the last years of Vidal's life, actually. They really did get back together after this hiatus of not seeing each other. So there it was. There was the man. And uh, he, at the time, was writing a manuscript. Someone had convinced him to write the story of his life, and Vidal uh, was encouraging him and said, I'll get it published for you. And he was true to his word. He did. He got it published immediately. So I started the movie the minute I walked into the living room and, and met the man. And he seemed very credible to me. Back to your uh, original question. So first and, of all, Vidal was vouching for him. Right, and exactly. I knew Gore Vidal really well. So people like to say, oh, he's a fabulist. You know, he makes things up. Uh, he's outlandish. He was not. He was really into the truth. I mean, if you really know his work well, uh, his memoir – Palimpsest starts, I believe the first sentence is a tissue of lies, question mark. So what he's doing is he's interrogating um, uh, truth and truth in fiction and uh, narrative truth, basically. Uh, So he's very on the table about um, truth-telling, and he always assailed Truman Capote for being a compulsive liar. And I really come down on Vidal's side. I think he was a truth-teller, and I think I knew him well and spent a lot of time with him in conversation and I read uh, everything you wrote. So I knew where all the vectors were and I had corollaries and almost footnotes to the conversations. And uh, anyway, that got me off on, um, I thought, a strong footing uh, and a point of view about this, um, again, I'll use the term picaresque narrative. It's very similar. Yeah. He's uh, there for these moments that you cannot believe he's there for. Yes, well, he's, you know, people say Zelig, too. Uh, yeah. He's got, he's all those things. People call him the Forrest Gump of sex. Uh, <laughs> people call him uh, sexual candide. All these things apply. You really can, uh, these these wonderful literary metaphors do apply to Scotty. But here I had the, I had the man. Uh, I met him when he was 89 turning 90. I started shooting on his 90th birthday at a big birthday party that his friends gave him at the Chateau Marmont. And that was a great place to start telling the story because all of these um, uh, hidden figures uh, from the um, underground of Hollywood who were still alive emerged and came to this party. You've never seen a 90-year-old with more friends. I mean, most 90-year-olds have a few, you know, old, old buddies or, or pals or, or friends and they, uh, you know, hang out together. Maybe, maybe not. This guy had friends of all ages, uh, who showed up very vital person. He's still with us. He's 96 and living in Laurel Canyon. Um, and sharp as ever. So I thought it was true. I certainly, um, prodded, him and cross-checked everything I could. And the more I checked, the more uh, evidence I had that he wasn't lying. And it often happened that the most unbelievable things he said were proven through uh, research. And also when I was interviewing him, I had someone next to me Googling everything he said, and which of course now we can do. It's kind of a wonderful thing. And then 
during breaks, he would pull the evidence uh, out. So I'll give you an example. Uh, he told a story about um, a closeted gay manager. He was Grace Kelly's manager, and he lived uh, in a, a twin. He lived in an adjacent house with his boyfriend, and they had a friendship gate because they never could admit that they were gay. And he gave the address of where these houses were, and he said there was a flagstone path that led to a gate, and the gate was in the shrub, and then you open the gate, and they would go sneak into each other's houses, et cetera. And I used to babysit. Uh, Grace Kelly's children there while he was taking her out on the town. And he was, uh, his boyfriend was a general in World War II. So we had these facts. We looked them all up. The names were all there. The boyfriend was a general. We looked up the real estate records and then we Google earthed the house address because he has, Scotty has a photographic memory for street addresses. So we had the address and you could see the, the path leading to the gate. Uh, so for me, this is proof really. I mean, how does one have a detail like that? And all of those architectural details and, and landscaping details, uh, I went into the addresses sometimes. I saw them myself or could find evidence of them in old architectural digest stories even and things like that. So there was a lot of proof. It's an extraordinary movie and it's not a, it's not a, mo it's a movie about um, not disbelieving but just be, having your mind blown I think by what's presented to you too. Which is, you know, true of, I think, of a lot of your movies. There's a lot, there's a hidden history in everything that you're doing. Yeah, counter-narrative, hidden history, um, things that appeared one way, but upon further examination or in hindsight uh, had a different meaning or connect to our present in a way that you might not have thought uh, they would. Scotty's just full of that. For me, it was, uh, because I, I alluded to the, fact that I'm an LA native. I grew up in um, kind of like a, in a Hollywood family, really. Uh, I don't love that term, but my father was a, a writer-producer for TV. He wrote Columbo uh, and The Mystery. The end, It was called the NBC Mystery Wheel. Uh, oh, yeah. Right? right? If you know Kiss Me Deadly, uh, you know the <laughs> NBC Mystery Wheel, which was this amazing um, series of... Uh, long-form uh, procedural crime drama in the 70s. Columbo is the most famous. Macmillan and Wife, which was the Rock Hudson vehicle, was mm -hmm. another. And so all of that type of Hollywood that goes from the Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Immortal, George Cukor Hollywood, I was interested in and liked. But there's a, there are many, many other layers of the town which really make it run and are just as fascinating but really don't get marquee attention. And uh, I always found that really interesting. What's the way the city works? What's really going on? Um, and what are the lies people are telling? And what, so Scotty's that really um, on so many levels. I mean, he's talking, you know, people talk about Catherine Hepburn and her bisexuality and Cary Grant, and this is what sold the book. And this is what sold the movie, too. But really, it's about uh, what's going on underneath all that. And uh, that's just endlessly fascinating to me. So, for instance, Charles Lawton, who it was a major, major character actor. He worked every day of his life. Uh, closet gay man, married to a woman, Elsa Lanchester, who uh, was the bride of Frankenstein. Yes, indeed. Uh, and they lived together on uh, Curson, uh near Waddles Park, if you know L.A., and the house is still there. Lawton's sexuality uh, was just never really discussed, you know? Um, and 
other people like uh, Raymond Burr, uh, who was the star of Ironside and Perry Mason, and also another character actor who worked every day of his life, lived across the street from Charles Lawton. Uh, so here you have this neighborhood, basically, with these really successful uh, actors who are the pillars of the town. And uh, they're living these full double lives, you know. Um, and Scotty tells you what's going on. Uh, and there's a wonderful story about Raymond Burr and Scotty. And I, I should say, okay, my connection to this is my dad wrote Ironside. And he told me when I was a kid, I don't know why it came up. He said that Raymond Burr was gay. Not sure how it came into the conversation, but I always remembered that. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a gay guy at all. And <laughs> that's so wonderful because I'm, you know, like, I, gay identity is so interesting and, you know, who's gay and who isn't and how we perceive gayness uh, is, is always a fascinating topic. And uh, the masks that you have to wear as an actor, and this is, I think, what's interesting about a, an actor like Raymond Burr, who's a tough guy, but he's really a gay man. And that's that's really relevant. I'd like to tell about I'd like to tell a story about that. And Scotty is the person who gives us the information. So one of the... Um, Oh, I, I'm going to add to that because I took my dad's dad, but I took his uh, producing partner out to lunch uh, and told him about uh, this movie and said that I had met a guy named Bob Benavides, who was Raymond Burr's boyfriend, uh, who Scotty introduced him to. And this is this wonderful story. Scotty introduces this guy, Bob, to Raymond Burr, and they live together for the rest of uh, Burr's life. And uh, my father's uh, producing partner said, oh, Bob, I know him. He was president of the production company. Yeah, Bob, we had lots of meetings with him. And he was like, he had no idea that he was Burr's boyfriend. Wow. Amazing. And that just just, just gutted me. I thought, I'm not in a bad way. I was just like, oh, I almost took my breath away. I was like, so this is the way it went, huh? I mean, like, this was business. And um, you're living with these people every day when you're making – it's really intense making a series. And the boyfriend was there and he was president of the production company, but no one ever said a word. I don't think that Jay, who I was talking to, really still – I kind of laid it out for him at lunch. I just don't think he had any inkling. And that was why I made the movie, really. I, I think that um, the secret – it's called Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Um, I was assailed, as I expected to be, uh, by people from, you know, John and Jane Q public to people I met in the street, people I met in the movie theater after I would do a Q&A, to uh, this kind of peculiar film scholar named Janine Basinger, uh, who's written a lot of books about Hollywood um, that have to do with movie stars negotiating their on and off screen identity. And she went after the movie in the New York Times and said, I really think that, you know, Cary Grant's off-screen life should be uh, left, um, you know, private. Well, I'm thinking, well, it's okay if you write about um, what Tracy and Hepburn are up to, but, uh, or Betsy Drake and Cary Grant, and Drake's one of the wives who co-starred in a film or two together. But when the minute uh, gayness or same sexuality comes into it, we're going to melt down and say that this is a zone of privacy. Well, if you take Hollywood seriously as a part of American history, world history, uh, to baldurize it and to uh, white out or straight wash, I guess is the term, uh, the private lives of immortal uh, people who are historical figures is a crime, really. It's a homophobic crime. 
Uh, and uh, this is a strong word. Uh, it's a hate crime in a way because it, it homophobia is a type is a form of hate. It's not obviously violent, but it, it, it's really uh, um, hateful. And Scotty is a living uh, testament to the uh, suppressed and repressed history of a very important place. Hollywood is important, and we need to take it seriously. I agree with you, Matt. I'm glad I asked you about Scotty because that was fascinating. Um, I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. I can tell that you are a film buff of a kind. So is there have you seen anything recently that you've loved? Um, I saw an obscure noir, actually, sure. a British noir called uh, Green for Danger. Do you know that? Movie? I do know it. It was yeah. an original uh, Criterion collection. Did you know? I think I stumbled on a copy 10, 12 years ago. Loved it. Yeah. I, I've never heard of it. And um, – it's really a wonderful, like tight little, um, almost like a locked room mystery in a way. Yeah, who do you, I can't remember the filmmaker. Do you know who it was? Uh, well, let's give him credit. Can yeah, we, can we yeah, Google? Sure. We can we'll look at the Google while we're here. Hang on, um, Green for Changer. Sydney Gilliatt? Does that sound familiar? Sounds to you? right. Um, we have to look at all of his films because he made a really good one, Green for Danger. Um, what is it that you responded to about it? It's um, shot in a very interesting way. It's a very claustrophobic film. Uh, it has a kind of Greg Tolan feeling to it, come to think of it. There are lots of low-ceilinged rooms. You know, Tolan used ceilings a lot, uh, which people didn't do in in that period because the sets obviously don't have ceilings on them. Cinematographer of Citizen Kane, among other things. Yeah, yeah. so it had that kind of... Um, very uh, high contrast, almost like a German expressionist uh, black and white palette. Um, and uh, takes place in uh, England during the war. Really beautiful performances. And then a really surprising, uh, a little surprise ending. Um, you're, just, you're just with it all the time. I mean, so many films in our present time they kind of they're too long and you get they lose you a little bit and i i just i love a 90 minute um a tight 90 minute movie from that period especially one we've never heard of you know it's so great to i mean i'd never heard of it i'm an idiot i criterion criterion fan people have uh know it so. i stumbled on it a long time ago and i probably haven't seen it since i first saw that name matt thanks so much for doing the show thank you Thanks again to Amanda Dobbins and thank you to Matt Turnauer. Please stay tuned to The Big Picture later this week. We have an epic conversation with the writer-director James Gray, who has made a wonderful film called Ad Astra. And Amanda and I will be breaking down the 30-year wonderful career of our greatest movie star, Brad Pitt. 